we've just got to remember what we are responsible for. We are not actually responsible for making our little ones sleep. Only they can fall asleep. We can't make them go to sleep. And it's such an incredible pressure to put on yourself to try and make another human being go to sleep against their will. It's just not going to happen. Hello and welcome to Mothers Matter podcast with me, Claire Pay. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Today we're talking about sleep, which is something which I always say this matters quite a lot to mothers and of course to children. Uh, we can, I'm talking with Lindsay Hookway, who is a wonderful sleep expert, very gentle, very warm. Uh, there's no condemnation in this podcast at all. Um, hopefully lots of encouragement and lots of tips. We're focusing largely on helping little ones to sleep, babies, toddlers, even um, up to 12, with tips and ideas about how to help them sleep and how to help ourselves when uh, they aren't sleeping. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. Lindsay, thank you so much for taking time to speak with me today about sleep, which is something which is very close to, I think, all mothers' hearts. Um, Can you tell us just a bit about um, who you are and what you do, how you got into being a sleep expert? Of course. Well, thank you, first of all, very much for having me. It's um, it's lovely to be here. Um, yes, I, I, I got into sleep, first of all, through my work. Um, I've been working with families for a, a very long time, um, and sleep used to come up constantly when I was nursing and when I was health visiting. And then my own little ones came along, and I thought naively that I would be well placed to deal with whatever came my way because obviously I was an expert um, being a seasoned health visitor by this point and um, and my own two kiddies came along and both of them you know threw lots of curveballs my way but especially my eldest who just we nicknamed her the lookout meerkat. She she came into this world two weeks early after a rough pregnancy and she was just on high alert from the second she was earthside. I've never seen any baby like her before um, and I've seen a few since but I, I really wasn't prepared for this baby. She didn't do anything that my training had prepared me for and I was completely blindsided. And I suppose she she led me to do far more research than I'd previously relied on um, that was included in my um, nursing and health visiting training. Right, yes, yeah, so it's personal experience of... Uh, of uh, did she not sleep very much then? Was that one of the things? She, she basically didn't really sleep in the day. And, and lots of people say that, but I really mean it. And I, I often... I often tell this story about uh, there was one day that really stands out in my mind. Um, She was eight weeks old and she was due to go for her first set of immunizations. And the appointment was at four o'clock. And I, I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, she's going to be so cranky and ratty if she doesn't have any sleep at all before her jabs. I've got to try for her sake to get her to sleep. And I really took on that responsibility personally 
to try and make her sleep before these jabs. And I, I think I'd elevated this into such a crusade in my head. I really thought that almost the world was going to fall apart if she didn't nap before these wretched jabs. And she didn't nap. Um, she'd woken up as usual at, you know, the crack of dawn, six o'clock or something. This is an eight week old baby. Uh, most people, you know, fondly remember those early weeks as a sort of fetal cocoon of loveliness with them snuggling on your shoulder. This baby was not like that. She literally wanted to be involved with everything from the moment she was born and didn't sleep. So anyway, this child did not sleep all day, um, despite doing everything I could think of. I, I fed her, I rocked her, I swayed. We uh, pushed her in the buggy, we put her in the sling and we fed her again. You know, honestly, I tried everything. We, it was only me. Um, uh, and, um, and she had the jabs and she was fine. But I remember it because I put so much pressure on myself to try and make her nap. And that's why one of the things that I talk about a lot these days is we've just got to remember what we are responsible for. We are not actually responsible for making our little ones sleep. Only they can fall asleep. We can't make them go to sleep. And it's such an incredible pressure to put on yourself to try and make another human being go to sleep against their will. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> but it taught me a lot. Well, I, th I think the thing is that when you're, you've got a, a little baby, you're so tired anyway, it's not just, um, it's not entirely altruistic. You want them to sleep so you can sleep and you want them to sleep so you can get on with something else. Absolutely. And you want them to sleep because if they don't sleep, you're in fear of how exhausted you're going to be the next day. So it's, that's, that's the problem. It's a really, a real double-edged sword that you want them to sleep for their own benefit. Because also I think, but yeah, my children, I thought my first one was a bad sleeper until I had my second one. <laughs> and he was <laughs> properly bad. <laughs> he was really, really bad. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just the sense that, you know, that, that if he doesn't sleep, he was in on much better form if he slept. You know, you'd say it's for your own good, just go to sleep. And um, yeah, so it's a subject that's very close to my heart now <laughs> about the whole sleeping thing. It's Oh, it is exhausting and it dominates your life, doesn't it? It does. I, I often talk about the sleep obsession and I it's certainly something that I experienced that just um, it just dominating my thought process and my conscious, my stream of consciousness all day was about sleep. When are you going to sleep? Is she going to nap? How long is she going to nap for? How can I make her nap? Where are we going to nap? Am I going to be able to nap? How long is it going to be till I go to sleep? How many hours till my husband gets home and can just hold the fort so I can try and get some sleep? Will I be able to sleep if I get the opportunity? Who could I call so that I can get? It, it was just endless. And actually, when I think about it now, I think that stream of consciousness was very depleting. It was very exhausting in and of itself. And if I had just let go of that, I think I would have been less tired because it's it's very it's very tiring to be in fight flight mode, anxious and stressed out about something all day long. Um, mm. Unbelievable. I still have it actually. When I wake up in the morning, I, my first thought is, "When can I go to bed tonight? <laughs> I can, how soon can I go to bed?" <laughs> but now they're up late because they're out, you know, uh, on activities and things. So it's a bit different. Yes. Um, so, so one thing you you speak about on your website is respectful parenting, and it sounds like we're moving towards um, an analysis of what that is when you talk about 
getting them to sleep and, you know, you feel responsibility to get them to sleep. How would the concept, what is respectful parenting and how would that help with a sleep issue? Well, I think when I'm talking about responsive, respectful parenting, um, there are so many words for this that have done the rounds. And to be honest, I I don't want to coin another word. I don't want, um, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to have something copyrighted or anything. I think there are enough words out there. And I, I think fundamentally, we're all talking about the same thing, I, whether you're calling it attachment parenting or gentle parenting. I think attachment parenting has some unhelpful connotations because it's so tied up with um, the, the the sort of seven um, key facets of uh, what is perceived to be attachment parenting. And I think some people feel excluded from that. So if, for example, they're not able to, or they've chosen not to breastfeed, or if they uh, don't feel it's safe for them in their personal situation to bed share, for example, I think, or if they had a really rough traumatic birth experience or their baby went to intensive care, I think those people feel excluded from the sort of purest AP perspective. So that's definitely why i tend to avoid that phrase, although I don't have a particular problem with it per se. But I think at the heart of responsive, respectful parenting, I'm talking about um, not pushing children beyond what they are capable of doing. So understanding um, what's developmentally appropriate, understanding um, what they're cognitively able to deal with and process, and understanding that they have emotional, psychological, relational um, social needs that are 24-7 and we can't just distill their needs down to are you clean, fed, watered, you know, uh, sheltered, all of warm, all of that stuff. But that's, that those are, you know, the bottom rung of um, the, the, the baseline of, of what we need as human beings. But actually, it's incredibly important that we remember that the psychological and social and relational and emotional needs are just as important and also ever present as well. And so anything, any approach to sleep and parenting that disregards or diminishes or disrespects those needs, um, I think is one that we need to be very, very careful about. And of course, there are always grey areas. Um, we can't get around that. You know, sometimes we need to um, do something abruptly uh, because we have no choice, and and that's that's reality. And I I never ever want parents who, you know, have to abruptly night wean, for example, or um, you know leave their little one with someone else. Um, I, I never want those parents to feel like they're going to be screwing their child up for life, which is what everybody worries about, of course. But I think it's it's about um, meeting their needs as best as you can, as often as you can, um, and, you know, acknowledging that those needs are valid and important. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And how, how would that feed through to um, sleep, to helping children? I mean, what would you, is there a normal pattern of sleep for babies? Yeah, I mean, I think that's two questions. So, yes, babies tend to sleep erratically um, for short periods of time. Um, They tend to wake up at the end of sleep cycles. And some babies are able to return to sleep with very little assistance or intervention. And that seems to be um, something that they're either born with or not. That doesn't seem to be something that you can actually teach little ones to do. Of course, they 
you know, develop and they mature and they um, grow into being better able to go back to sleep once they've woken up. But um, broadly speaking, most littles will wake up frequently at night and that's just normal. Most littles will feed in the night until at least 12 to 18 months and that's normal. And actually there are a few studies that have come out more recently um, that have found that night waking and even night feeding is normal um, into age three and four. Um, I think we just don't have as much data on those um, population groups, that's all. But in terms of how um, responsive, respectful parenting feeds into sleep, I often talk about how actually when we're when we're thinking about making uh, a change to sleep, it's usually because something has become unsustainable for a parent. And that's that's fair enough. But, you know, it, it, none of us is here to judge what somebody finds manageable and, and what might be unsustainable. If a parent finds something unsustainable, we have to try to go into making changes with the knowledge and understanding that this might be really difficult for our little people and we have to be um, cautious with that. And I like to think of it as a bit of a dynamic dialogue with a little one rather than saying, right, I'm going to change this. Tonight's the night and we're going to do it and we're just going to doggedly persevere through this change irrespective of your response. To me, that is a non-responsive style of parenting and that for me, that that even includes being present. So I don't think that it's necessarily a gentle sleep solution if the parent is right there all the time. I think it very much depends on how the parent is emotionally and physically responding to what their child is telling them about how they're finding this change. And what I think is a more responsive way of doing it is considering this to be a dialogue. So it's almost like we're saying to our little ones, okay, kiddo, this isn't working for me. I want to try something new. Okay. We're going to give it a go and we'll just see what happens. If you're okay with it, we'll carry on a little bit longer. We might, you know, change it up or we might just sit here with this change. And then when you seem, you know, really okay with it, then we'll move on and we'll, we'll, you know, try and um, change it even more. But actually we need to listen to their response when we're making that change. And if they're telling us loudly and clearly with their behavior or their vocalization that they're not coping with this change, they are struggling with it, they don't have the resources to deal with this change right now, then I think as our as parents, it's our job to listen to that and go, okay, do you know what? We tried it tonight. It wasn't a good day. That's okay. We'll we'll try it again tomorrow or next week or the next nap or daddy can try it, or grandma can try it, or whatever. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's never going to work, but I think unless it's an absolute emergency, unless you absolutely have to do it tonight, if there's a, if there's a chance that we can just listen to what they're saying and pause, stop, rewind, or you know restart it another time, I think that is a more respectful way of handling sleep changes. Um, and, you know, I, I am so mindful that some parents don't have the privilege and the luxury of being able to say, you know, that's what they're going to do. I, I get that. But I, I don't ever want um, people to feel like if they've started something, they must pursue it to the bitter end, irrespective of response. 
Um, uh, well, absolutely. I, I think the difficult thing for me would be to understand the difference between something that's sort of physiological, that's keeping them awake, something that's psychological, and where children are being... Uh, well, at some point you talk about bad habits not being bad habits. Bad habits is a really unhelpful phrase that people, um, you, you know, there's a certain sort of stream of people who say, oh, they're just taking advantage of you. They're trying to manipulate you, this sort of six-week-old, um, and, and give them all sorts of things which they're not capable of thinking. But I, I think the difficult thing is to know how far the baby is cry in terms of communicating baby doesn't have very many ways of communicating they've got body and they've got intensity of their cry um i suppose uh but to be able to discern where the baby is crying well i guess it comes into developmentally appropriate as well to understand at what point they're just crying because that's the only thing they can say they're not happy they don't want to be put down under any circumstances and they will never want to go to sleep how far you know at what age they're actually saying i've got i've got you here and i know that if you go out and i cry you'll come back in how do you discern between what's going on it's a big question i mean i, I think mostly parents are pretty good at being able to tell whether their baby is really upset or not. And I I, I always um, want parents to feel empowered that they can judge that. Um, normally, the gut is pretty good at telling us if, if it makes you feel slightly sick and sinking inside, it's probably not right. Whereas if you're feeling like, oh, come on, little one, you're, I know this is hard, but I'm here. I'm holding you. I'm just not going to feed you. I fed you 20 minutes ago. <laughs> um, I think it, it very much depends on the scenario. If it's an older child and, you know, let's say it's a 15 month old and we just don't want to feed them every hour all night long. Um, you know, it, it might be that we decide that actually, do you know what? You're probably old enough to have a cuddle. Um, actually, it, you know, I fed you an hour ago. We're just going to cuddle and I'm going to rub your back and I'm here for you. I'm hearing that you're finding this hard, but, you know, we've got to make some changes here. And I think I think it's just about um, a parent knowing their child. And also it's about the context. Six week olds can't manipulate their parents. And of course, it's really easy to say that. And it's really easy to say that a 15 month old probably doesn't need to feed every hour all night long. And of course, there's a, a big grey area between those two really clear cut kind of ages. At what point um, is it reasonable to sort of toggle back and forward between some changes and, um, you know, try something different and for it to be difficult for a little one? And I honestly think that is up to a parent. I'm certainly not a big fan of um, forcing abrupt cold turkey night weaning on um, a child certainly under the age of a year but probably under the age of about 18 months because of the large research studies that we have that demonstrate that night feeding is actually normal but there's a big difference between two night feeds and every 45 minutes all night long and you know that that's where it becomes gray and that's where it's okay to talk about things like limits and boundaries and um, you know, responding in other ways that aren't necessarily the child's favourite or preferred way. Does that answer your question? It's a big question. I, I it's it's difficult <laughs> to answer it generically. 
Yes, it is. I had well. If I give um, my children's example, so my daughter, who who is the oldest one, she kept waking up, and um, we tried in those days. She's fifteen now, so this is way back. We tried the one minute, three minute, five minute, seven minute thing, which is if people don't know, it's where you leave them for a minute, you go back in, you leave them three minutes, go back in, um, and it worked for her. By the time we got about nine minutes, and with her, I got the sense that she was just cross. She was really cross that we were going out I mean she was I can't even remember how old she was now but she certainly wasn't tiny but she and she did eventually sort of get herself to sleep uh, with that and then when my son came along I'd rock him and I'd put him down and he'd cry as soon as I put him down and he'd start crying in a sort of really frustrated sort of way like he didn't want to be awake he wasn't trying to manipulate he actually wanted to be asleep um and in the end, we took him to a cranial osteopath who said that there was a slight blockage in the blood flow in the brain. So um, when I was lying him down, that was all pooling at the back of his brain. Anyway, whatever. She did some work on him and he got better. But then he could go to sleep for 45 minutes or so. That You know, when you laid him down, he'd go to sleep. And I tried the one minute, three minute. It didn't work. He was just distraught. And in the end, I, I had some sleep coaching with him and we did a very gentle sort of withdrawal and all sorts of we did all sorts of things um and he does he yeah he still needs he's 12 now can if he can't get to sleep he is happy for me to be in the room with him that helps him get to sleep but once he's asleep he's fine whereas my daughter doesn't get to sleep very quickly but she doesn't mind she just sort of hangs around (laughs) and doesn't involve me so that would I'd say that was where I could tell that she was just being cross and he was really upset and didn't want to be awake. She didn't want me to leave the room. He didn't want to be awake. He wanted to be asleep. Um, but if we go from that onto strategies, then what what sort of what would you take a parent through if they came to you? They said, "Look, my baby's just not sleeping." Say the baby's six months old, um, and uh, so big enough, I guess, to have enough food in their tummy for a few hours, but they're just not getting to sleep. What what would you look at? What would you take people through to see what the options might be? So I think it's it's sensible to always start with, um, it, is there anything bothering this little one? So is there a medical problem? Is there a feeding problem? Is there an allergy? Is there a discomfort? Is there reflux? Is there um, some sort of physical discomfort? Is there wind? Is there, uh, you know, flat head? All, all sorts of things can make sleep go squirrely. Um, So it's always a good idea to rule that out first. It's also a good idea to rule out anything that might be a red flag. So open mouth breathing, snoring, um, pauses in breathing, going a funny colour, weird, jerky, one-sided movements. Anything like that needs to be um, uh, checked by a doctor. Um, If we've ruled out all of that, then I think the next thing to check is how much sleep is actually being achieved in a 24-hour period because a lot of people have quite unrealistic expectations about how much sleep is realistic for um, little ones overnight and also for naps as well. So for a six-month-old, we'd be expecting somewhere between 12 and 15 hours of total sleep time in 24 hours. So what I normally do is I start by looking at how much sleep the child's um, achieving overnight. We don't count um, feeds because little ones can feed in um, light sleep. So even if they're feeding every hour, we don't count that as awake time. So let's say they go to bed at 
eight and they wake up at I don't know seven o'clock in the morning let's 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 be generous um that's 11 hours of overnight sleep which is absolutely normal it's it's not normal or common for little ones under the age of about two to get more than 10 or 11 hours of sleep overnight so then we would look at how much sleep is happening in the day as well so if um if there's i don't know let's just say four hours of sleep time happening in the daytime you might look at that add it to your 11 and think hmm that's 15 hours of total sleep in 24 that's right at the upper end of the average range um, it may be that that's just a little bit too much sleep for this particular child and what we know um, is a really really quick fix is if there's too much sleep happening what that does is it lowers the sleep pressure and it makes it much harder to fall asleep stay asleep and sleep till a decent time so sometimes just reducing the total amount of sleep, reducing the daytime naps, either the frequency or the length of the naps, or making the bedtime a bit later, or sometimes all of those things will increase the sleep pressure and lead to at least one consolidated stretch of sleep, which can be a game changer. So that's that's a usually an incredibly easy fix, usually involves no crying at all, no distress or drama or you know, anything unpleasant. And that would always be my first thing to try um, because it we can't make children sleep more than they're, you know, they're biologically um, uh, wired to sleep. So would you, can I just ask on that, would you suggest waking them up? I mean, I never had this problem, but would you suggest waking, waking them up during the day, during a nap and shortening yeah, you, you nap could, artificially? You could do that. Or if there are too many naps, you could just, um, just, increase the amount of time between naps I don't want to be specific on timings because that's not my style and, and little ones need an individual uh, approach that's you know uh, cue based um, but you know let's say they're getting four naps in the daytime at six months we, you know it would probably be reasonable to get to three so you know increasing the amount of time um, and then the other thing to do is sometimes people really believe that the more sleep they get in the day the better the night's going to go and that's really only the case in children who are actually genuinely sleep deprived if they're genuinely sleep deprived that might be a sensible approach but in my experience, you know, in the last couple of years, it's much more likely to be the other way around. Children are often being offered the opportunity for too much sleep and they simply don't have enough sleep pressure. So one of the things that people do is they try to prolong naps. They try and get in at the end of a nap to try and extend it. Again, that is sometimes a sensible strategy for some scenarios, but for, for this particular um scenario which is really common the one that you've brought up it isn't necessarily the right strategy if there's enough sleep happening in the day already so just not prolonging the nap is is um, also a good option but yes sometimes you know if they're having a, a two and a half hour sleep in the afternoon um, and then they're being expected to go to bed you know two hours later at bedtime they simply may not have built up uh, built up sorry enough um, sleep pressure and fatigue to be able to manage a solid stretch of sleep because children often have their longest stretch of sleep after their longest time awake. So we need to give them a chance to build up some sleep pressure so that they can actually sleep. 
Uh, would you suggest um, putting them to bed later if you think they've had a long nap in the afternoon or, or do you think a routine is better of going to bed at the same time? I think, you know, when they get older and, um, you know, it, life's a bit more predictable, it definitely makes sense to have a, a, a predictable bedtime routine that's approximately the same time every day. But definitely, if you're at one of those ages where um, you're on the cusp of dropping a nap, sometimes we do need to be a bit flexible. Or if we have that, you know, un, unscheduled disaster nap in the back of the car on the way back from the supermarket or the school run at four o'clock or whatever it is um, that's you know, uh, you know, not quite as you planned it, then sometimes, yes, we just need to be flexible and go, okay, fine. They've only woken up at five o'clock. Let's not even attempt bedtime until, I don't know. It, it really depends on the child, you know, half eight, nine o'clock. Mm. Don't, don't be scared to try a later bedtime. Mm. Um, and uh, what happens if it's the opposite problem? They're not getting enough sleep. So they're waking up so much overnight, not necessarily feeding, just being upset and crying and so on. Yeah, if if they're having a very disturbed night, normally, again, they will tell us that they are sleep deprived in the day with their behaviour. And we can normally trust that behaviour. Um, so, you know, if they're cranky, miserable, you know, sort of throwing themselves around. You know what kids are like when they're just absolutely exhausted. Um, then, you know, obviously, let, let's try and squeeze another nap in or let's try an earlier bedtime. But we've got to be really careful with a, a really early bedtime because it's not normal for children to sleep more than 10 or 11 hours overnight. So if you put them to bed at six o'clock, you, you cannot be too surprised if they want to start their day at four or even you know, five o'clock in the morning, because it may just be that even though they were really tired, they just run out of sleep pressure by the time they've had 10 or 11 hours. So if that happens, you're probably better off doing a really, really short power nap at five uh, for 10 minutes and then um, try and stick with a normal bedtime sort of eight, eight thirty. Um to stop you from facing your day at five o'clock in the morning because nobody wants to do that, do they? <laughs> no, and particularly I remember when the clocks changed, the first year when the clocks changed when I had my daughter and I realised we'd woken up, instead of waking up at five, we'd actually woken up at four I and mean, it's a jolly long time till bedtime. <laughs> I know, it changed my perception of the clocks going back or whatever it is in, yes. in the uh, autumn. Yeah. It's just an extra long it. day. Uh, it, it's uh, you know the the clock changes um actual hell for parents of young children <laughs> completely irrelevant to the rest of the world but for parents of of littles it's a nightmare yeah. isn't it that's right um but then thinking about the child uh, I think about my son who just doesn't sleep you know you put them down they wake up 45 minutes later you put them back down you get them back to sleep they wake up 45 minutes later so it's not a sort of one nap day thing it's just uh, goes on all year um what what strategies do you have or what, what would you suggest with with a child like that I mean, honestly, it, it's really difficult to say without looking at that in detail. And I mean, I don't see clients anymore, but when I used to, um, that's a good 45 minutes of looking at a three day sleep diary and then, you know, an hour and a half of, you know, discussing that with a family. So it's really, really difficult to say. Um, and it's also very dependent on what a parent um, wants to do and in what sort of time frame. But 
I've got lots of um, strategies that I talk about in Let's Talk About Your New Family Sleep and in Still Awake for all the little ones. There's things like habit stacking. Um, there's strategies like um, floor beds and helping them to feel secure and confident that you're there so that they don't freak out. Because often those kids that bouncing up every 45 minutes they just need to be reassured of your presence and sometimes just spending two weeks just staying with them so they don't get that stress response when they wake up sometimes they then just calm down they just get used to longer stretches of sleep and then you can begin to roll away sometimes um, but again it it, it really it, it's different for all families and you know they, they uh, there may be other factors that are um, impacting sleep overnight what would be what do you think is going on i think you referred to a bit there where it's largely a, a um, relational thing so an attachment thing where they they wake up and they don't like it if you're not there does it when they wake up and you're not there does that generate some sort of let's be wide awake and worried uh, hormone is that what's what's happening there do you think um well i mean separation anxiety is normal and um you know it, it's a completely normal developmental stage and little ones know no other reality than their their parent and often their mother it's it's completely normal for them to sort of need to be literally here with us um all the time and if you look at lots and lots of cultures all around the world um most people carry and wear their little ones close to them for two or three years so it never ever surprises me that little ones um, have that stress response. And I, I don't think it's a stress response that is um, unique to the attachment bond. I think it's just a, a generic stress response because if you think about it, if you had put cave baby down um, with, you know, let's just imagine that cave um, baby had a nappy, but of course he didn't, but um, let's imagine he did. Let's imagine he's got a full tummy, but actually it's not safe for cave baby to be plonked down in the floor of a cave um, while, you know, mum or dad just quickly goes to hang out the laundry. I've got no idea if they hung out laundry, but, you know, <laughs> just, just play along because anything could happen. A snake, a bad spider, a massive bug the size of a house cat, a, you know, a saber toothed tiger. And the thing is, our nervous system hasn't really evolved that much from cave baby. So cave baby mounts a, a, a stress response because it's not safe. And that's why they were carried and worn and held all the time to keep them off the floor where it's not safe. And I spoke to somebody recently um, from the Philippines and she was saying that um, they believe it's bad for children to be put down on the floor. And a lot of the reason for that is because you know, having grown up in Southeast Asia, I, I can also confirm this is true. There really are bugs the size of small mammals um, wandering around all over the floor, <laughs> as well as snakes and um, all sorts of nasty things. It is not a good idea for little ones to be put down on the floor because they have very, very few skills that they can recruit to protect themselves. They can't run away. They can't you know, tell us in a sophisticated verbal way what the problem is. All they have at their disposal is a stress response and a pair of lungs. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it really never, ever surprises me when little ones yell out when they wake up and no one's there because basically they're just being cave baby. They don't know that there isn't a gigantic snake 
um, you know, in their room or not, that they they don't, um, you know, they don't think about why they're um, stressed without their primary caregiver. They just know that they are. Does that make sense? Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So if you if you go down the line of having the baby in your room or even in your in your bed for however long, how do you then transition? Is there a developmental stage at which the baby thinks, you know, the toddler thinks I don't need this anymore and they're happy or would they be more more likely to, you know, separate if you made them separate at a younger age? Um. So there's there's lots in that. I think that's partly about what the parent wants. Uh, I think you're asking when is a child ready of their own accord to to move on from bed sharing or closeness. I think, and that um, yes yes lots of children um, do just get to the point where they want some more space. I think it's highly variable though. And again, um, when I was writing Still Awake, I spoke to people from all over the world. And many of them were saying that actually in their culture, in their community, it's normal to have a family bed until um, the tween or even the teen years. It's completely normal. And I think it's if you think about adults, I'm an exception to this rule. Actually, I love space on my own um, in bed at night. But most people actually like to sleep in close proximity with another human. Uh, Most adults do as well. And therefore, again, why do we think little ones are any different? It's really not a surprise that they would prefer to be in the bed, except if they're little ones like me. I, you know, I, I probably would have been easy in that respect because um, I like my own space and always have done. Um, So I I think, yes, they do. A lot of them will grow out of it of their own accord at some point, which is variable. I'm really sorry. I'm not going to give a a definitive age on that because I do think there is a massive amount of variability and it's also um, uh, socially constructed and influenced by culture as well. However, you, I think you're touching on another point, which is sometimes parents are done with bed sharing. Now, again, that's, that's fair enough. That's about the sustainability piece again. And if parents get to a point with anything, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's uh, bed sharing or feeding to sleep or rocking to sleep or whatever, it, you know, insert whatever irritating situation you can think of into this scenario. But if it gets unsustainable, it's okay for parents to say, do you know what, kiddo, this isn't working for me. I think we're going to try something different. Can you just work with me on this? We're going to see if we can do something different. And that's okay. But again, it comes back to my earlier point about listening to their response. Is this a good time for them? Are they about to start daycare or nursery? If so, yeah, you might want to just delay this a little bit because this is going to be a massive upheaval. Is everybody ill? If so, really bad time. You're just going to be even more sleep deprived. Are there lots of stresses in the home? Is everybody fighting and falling out because it's just a really difficult, busy time? They're building work. You know, you're about to get a new puppy. Whatever it is, is this a good moment right now? But yes, it's fine to try and make a change. How do you do that? Again, that depends on a number of factors, including, you know, how old this little one is, um, how many bedrooms you have, how much space you have in your room. How do you feel about floor beds? How do you feel about 
co-sleeper beds? Have you got a partner who's engaged and is willing to take some other slack? You know, there's so many variables with that. It's a floor bed, just a bed in their room. Yeah, it's literally floor, a mattress on the floor. I do recommend you put the, uh, the mattress on slats because otherwise there's, you know, less airflow, which is yucky. Mm. Um, but the reason floor beds are um, such a great tool, in my humble opinion, is because they are safer. So we're not leaving little ones on a, a high bed where they can roll off and crash onto the floor and bang their heads it's probably not going to do most children any harm but it's unpleasant and it's loud and it's you know disruptive and all of that um so it's less far to fall so usually if they roll you know five inches off a, a mattress on the floor especially onto a carpeted floor lots of children don't even wake up that's the first reason the second reason is that having a floor bed avoids the need to spend ages getting a little one to sleep either in bed next to you lying down or on your shoulder or on your boob or whatever it is and then have to lift them into the crib or cot and that's usually the point at which they startle awake and you have to start all over again and it's maddening whereas with a floor bed you can cuddle them in the place where they're ultimately going to stay asleep and then sneak away it's brilliant um, it just stops all of that drama um, and saves you a lot of time and stress and, you know, if, if people like floor beds, they can keep it. If they don't like floor beds, once they've got a little one who's happy to be left for a little while and can fall asleep lying down, having a cuddle instead of being fed or over the shoulder, then you can transition into a cot or crib, put the put the bars back on and um, and then move on from that. You know, you don't have to wed yourself to a floor bed forever, but it can be used as a tool to get you where you want to be. So are you suggesting a floor bed for the, the child or the baby in their room um, or in or I because I was thinking it was a bed that I slept on on the floor in their room. But you're saying it's a bed in their room that they sleep on. And we go in and then leave when they're asleep. You can do it either way. Um, sometimes people put a big double mattress on the floor. So there's plenty of space um, for them as well. Again, it, this depends on age, doesn't it? And, um, you know, if you've got a child who you're contemplating a toddler bed for anyway, you might as well buy a full sized single mattress because it's going to save you money in the long run. And it's more practical because there's more space. Um, if we're talking about a, a baby under six months, then that little one needs to be in the same room as um uh, as the parents anyway. And um, I don't know how international your audience is, but uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommend 12 months. So um, it, it depends a little bit on which guidelines you're following as well. Right. There's a lot of listeners in India, apparently. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, and I think I touched on this before, but I just wanted to double check. If, is there a case in which you would meet uh, what you'd see as a child's needs? So be present, lie with them or whatever, which would prolong what might be seen as a bad habit, <laughs> i.e. that they can't get to sleep without a parent, or does it actually accelerate or just make no difference at all that when they're ready to go to sleep on their own, they will go to sleep on their own? So I think that's the fear that parents have, that if yes. I so-called give in to their you know demands i meet their needs <laughs> that this will somehow delay them going to sleep on their own it's really difficult because there's two parts to that statement one is 
do little ones form habits? Of course they do. Yeah, absolutely. They um they they uh, they learn by repetition, and that's how um, all of us form habits. You know, we we form a neural pathway in the brain, um, linking two things together. And the more we um, link those two things together, the more hardwired that neural pathway becomes. So the more entrenched the habit is, and that's why I recommend. Uh, my habit stacking strategy because it actually respects the fact that there's a solid neural pathway there. And what we're trying to do is add to um, uh, that established habit rather than just switch it out, which will be really difficult. So can little ones form habits? Absolutely. Is this a bad habit? No, because um, it, it it's just being responsive. Um, babies have needs and parents show up and meet them every day in a number of different ways. Um, and that's absolutely appropriate. Is it difficult? Of course. Yeah, parenting is. <laughs> it's really difficult. Um, now, I think we we do definitely have to remember the other piece of that, though, which is that we do not teach children to be independent by forcing independence on them. We teach them to be independent um, by first meeting their needs for dependency. And through showing up and consistently meeting those needs for dependency, what we're doing is we're um, creating that solid foundation, that that secure attachment that has um, lifelong impact. Um, And we know that securely attached people have better relationships, they have uh, better job outcomes, they have um, they earn more, uh, they are less sick, they um, have fewer sleep problems in adulthood. So this is amazing to me because if you think about, um, you know, a seemingly uh, huge explosion in adult sleep problems like insomnia and, you know, poor quality sleep or, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and not being able to go back to sleep – you know, I do wonder how many of those people are um, insecurely attached and does that have any link at all with being, you know, having that independence forced on them in um, infancy? I don't know. There's no research out there to, to prove it or disprove it. It's just amusing. I just wonder, that's all. And I obviously there, there are lots more factors involved with that. But I definitely think we just need to be sensible and remember that we can't force children to not need us. If they need us, they need us. And that can never be thought of as a bad habit. Um, Yes, sometimes things are unsustainable and we don't have to do things in the same way um, if we can think of a responsive alternative. And, And that's why I often use the feeding example, because you know, do children need us to be responsive in the middle of the night? Absolutely. Do they need to be fed when they were only fed 45 minutes ago? Maybe not. Now, that doesn't mean that if you choose to feed them because feeding is an effective, useful, efficient tool to get them to return to sleep, that it's a bad habit. You're just being smart and using your, you know, superpower to get them back to sleep. Does that make sense? But, you know, I think yeah. we yeah. definitely need to not think that showing up for them is embedding a bad habit. That's a really negative way of thinking about it. And with your habit stacking, I've heard this in all sorts of contexts now. Um, can you just say a bit more about what would be an example of a habit stacked in terms of children going to sleep? Yeah. So basically, if let's use feeding again because it's so common 
let's say a parent doesn't want to feed to sleep, whether that's breast or bottle, um, that they, they're done with it. But if you just swap feeding to sleep for, let's just say, patting, the chances are a little one is going to go absolutely bonkers about that. Because think about that neural pathway. If you've fed them to sleep every single time they've woken up or every time they needed to go to sleep for you know, three months, six months, nine months, 18 months or whatever, the chances are that's a pretty solid neural pathway. And they're going to be like, hang on a minute, where's my boob? Where's my bottle? Um, what are you patting me for, you crazy human? I, I don't want to be patted. I just just give me my milk, for goodness sake. It's not it's not difficult. And I can absolutely see where they're coming from because we've always done that. How on earth are they supposed to know that tonight's the night they're not going to have that and that's okay? So rather than doing that, what we do is we carry on feeding to sleep, but we add patting on top. Um, so we we just stack the one that we want to get towards on top of it at the same time. And at every possible um, time we remember when we're feeding to sleep, we pat as well. Now, you can multiple habit stack um, because you know giving children more tools is not necessarily um, a, a bad idea at all. You could you could shush and pat or you could give them a, a little muslin to hold. Um, if they're under 12 months, I wouldn't recommend you put it down in their bed with them. But um, you can certainly give it to them as they're falling asleep. It's just another, um, you know, nice little comforter. But you do that for several weeks. Now, I'm sorry, it's not a quick fix because um, neural pathways take time to um, to develop. So this is definitely one you want to do not in a crisis. You want to do this proactively. Some people do it from birth um, if they've... Um, gone on my social media and they've read about it and they think ah do you know what I'll, I'll get that going <laughs> ASAP and lots of people tell me that they've started it from very early and actually the transition to moving away from feeding to sleep was super gentle and easy because they've done this from you know a, a really early stage um, and of course you know being mindful that it's almost impossible to stop a young baby from falling asleep feeding because that's just the way it goes right so it just takes the pressure off that idea that parents have that feeding to sleep is a bad habit and they don't want to get into that um, this actually reframes it as well actually it's a tool just feed to sleep because it's easy and it works and it's biologically normal and all of that good stuff but let's just pat and shush and do the comforter at the same time because then you've got a, a conduit a bridge towards moving away from it when you feel ready so what you would do is then you would just stop the feed just a little bit earlier, just before they're completely sound asleep. Just take them off, just keep them in arms, but carry on all of those habits. And then you know, normally children are, are OK with that. And then after another couple of days, see how it goes. Then you stop even earlier and you hold and pat and shush and blah, blah, blah. blah. And then after another few days, you're actually going to... Um, uh, take them off when they're definitely still awake and hold them so that they're holding to sleep at that point. And then you've already made one little change, hopefully without any crying at all. And then after another few days, what we're going to try and do is feed awake, hold until they're very, very sleepy and then put them down again, carry on, pat, shush, comforter. And this way, what we're doing is we're, we're sort of, it's like a sliding scale of, um, parental intervention we start with all the things and then we gradually just remove them very very slowly and at the child's pace and that's what I mean by being responsive if we make a change 
and actually they're not okay with it, they're not coping, then at that point we go, okay, too much, too soon. That's okay. We're just going to pause here. We're going to back up a step. It doesn't mean it's gone to pieces. We just back up, take it slower, wait for, I don't know, the tooth to come through or the, you know, dodgy tummy ache to pass or whatever it is that's bugging them that means that they, they haven't got the capacity for this bit of progress right now. Um, but it's so effective. Does it work for everyone? No, of course not, because nothing does. Um, but it works for a, a huge number of people. It's definitely worth a try. And what, what happens with those um, neural pathways and the habits? If you Do they sort of lay down, like if you have a day where it goes wrong, because they are ill or whatever, yeah. do, do you go back to the beginning? Or I mean, do, in their neural pathways, does it sort of wipe out everything you've done or can you pick up where you left off? Well, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I, I, <laughs> I'm not going to comment on exactly what happens to the neural pathway. But um, what I normally um, suggest to parents is, look, just do it as often as you can. You know, whenever you remember, don't obsess about, oh, my gosh, I missed one. Ah, it's all it's all gone completely wrong. Um, I'm going to have to start over. I, honestly, I think babies are more robust than that. I think they're, you know, they're more intelligent than that. Um so I, no, I would just do it as often as you can remember, and and often I say that in the context of the middle of the night, um, it's easier to remember this stuff when it's two o'clock in the afternoon rather than two o'clock in the morning. If you forget at two a.m., don't worry about it. Just do it when you remember. No, no drama, no stress. All of this is about reducing the drama and stress because drama and stress is not conducive to sleep. Because as I say, nearly every day of my life, you can't sleep with your foot on the gas pedal, and that that means that. If you're dysregulated or stressed about anything, that's not a good, um, you know, environment for sleep to occur in. So we need to sometimes focus on getting calm and relaxed rather than I've got to get to sleep. And you know, I, I hark back to my earlier memory of trying to make my eight-week-old go to sleep. I, I do sometimes wonder if I'd just relaxed and gone, okay, kiddo, fine, knock yourself out, be awake all day if you want makes no difference to me we're just going to hang out get on with our day and see what happens and I wonder if I'd just taken my foot off the gas pedal calmed the heck down and relaxed about it whether she would have gone to sleep because she wasn't sensing that you know mummy was threatened you know my, my poor baby didn't know that all I was worried about was her wretched nap for all she knew, I was worried about the saber-toothed tiger coming along. Um, she she had no idea. She just knew that I was dysregulated, probably. Um, and that, that brings me on to a question about the mothers and the attitude of mothers. When it's 3 a.m. and you've been up at 11, 12, 1 and 2, um, you know, the babies are going to – I remember I'd wake up and I'd be absolutely furious and stomp through, but as soon as I saw – them I'd be like oh this is lovely I let's give you a hug but um is there something is there, have you got any strategies or help for mothers sort of psychologically in the middle of the night that they can tell themselves I don't know mantras this won't last forever isn't it lovely my baby's here not in a nightclub or whatever yeah. but, you know is there, is there something to help the the mothers regulate their stress because as you say I wonder whether the baby picks up on the fact you're just furious and you're so tired and you're also people who have to go out to work you know I'm worried I'm going to mess up at work tomorrow so it's very hard to be a calming presence yes yes what, I yeah, um, I absolutely agree I think anger um is a very very common um feeling in the middle of the night when littles wake up I used to remember feeling furious and also it was this deep sense of injustice this isn't fair 
this isn't fair. You want me to show up for you all day. I've been with you all day. I've given out all day and I just need you to sleep longer than an hour. It's ridiculous. Um, so the, the sense of injustice for me was tangible, but also as a raging feminist, it used to make me furious because, of course, you know, a lot of women are carrying this with not enough help, not enough recognition, not enough, um, uh, you know, validation for the valuable work that we do, often free and the sacrifices that we make for our own um, careers because of um, the hugely important work of raising babies. So it used to make me livid. So I can absolutely relate to that. I think one of those, one of the things that I think about with that is that this is partly a symptom of a lack of support and validation and, you know, the, the respect that we're due as parents. Um, so that's, that's definitely something that's worth pondering. You know, do, do you feel appreciated? Is it time to have a chat with your partner about, you know, actually mothering doesn't necessarily involve housework as well. But, you know, can we reorganize some of the things that go on around here so that I feel less burdened, so that I feel less exhausted and overwhelmed? Is there a way that we can share the load overnight a little bit more? Um, you know, could you do the first three hours of the night or could you um, take them at five o'clock in the morning and let me get two hours of valuable sleep? I think knowing that there's something that you're practically doing to redress the balance is really important. And I, I have a whole chapter actually in Let's Talk on relationships because this stuff comes up all the time. It's the, the lack of balance or the, um, the imbalance in uh, the dynamic and how the relationship dynamic changes when you have a little one. I think from what I've seen and, and witnessed over many years of supporting families, um, this is often a really, really big, um, gritty issue at the heart of that anger in the middle of the night. I think the other thing is um, having some psychological strategies um, in the middle of the night as well. You're absolutely right. We, we, are, we are irrational um, when we are exhausted and it's really easy to get irrational, isn't it? Um, and, and also to, to get into the pit. And as someone who really did struggle with her mental health um, in, you know, for, for years, actually, in the early parenting fog, um, I think it's really, really important that, um, that, that we recognise when we're in a pit. So if you feel like um, you're in a pit, you don't know how you got in the pit, but you are and you can't see a way out. No one's throwing you a rope. It's dark and it's grimy and it's grotty and it's depressing and it's awful. If you feel like you're there and you can't get out of it, then you definitely need to get some help for that because um, that will uh, make the experience of parenting, in, especially parenting at night, really difficult. And uh, that, that can be one reason why when we wake up in the night, we settle that little one actually quite quickly, but then lie there furious and um, irritable that we were woken up in the first place. And then we then it's only a short hop, skip and a jump from blaming our baby at that point, which is why it's so important to get help. That's definitely a, a cry for help. 
Um, and then, yes, having some mantras, you know, if, if there's something you can say to yourself, um, if there's a, a, a logical thought that you can just repeat, this will not be forever. Um, I am an amazing parent. Um, my baby is not doing this to punish me or, or whatever it is you need to tell yourself in the middle of the night. If that works, then amazing. But I, I think we do also need to hold a bit of space for, for parents who need some practical help as well. So whether that's a partner stepping up, making a few changes around, um, you know, feeling a little bit more honoured and respected and validated for the important work of mothering and parenting. I think that's a big part of it. I think when we feel underappreciated, uh, it tends to make us more angry. Or maybe I'm just speaking for myself. <laughs> I'm sure there's a few <laughs> people who are roaring along with me um, about that because it's a, it's a big issue. Yeah, yeah. I, I know one of our problems with my son is that my husband was um, ill for a lot of his first year. So he was either in hospital or at home and needing to sleep. And so Charlie never got used to going to Andy in the night. So there wasn't an alternative. And I'd say, you know, can you just take the baby? And he would. And then the baby would carry on crying. And I think it's very hard for men as well because they're, you know, used to being moderately successful in other parts of their lives. But and then, the, you know, the mother takes the baby and it calms down instantly. So I, there's a lot of stress with that. You think yes. you want them to help out more, but then they, they don't have the same sort of assets as yes, you do. And you absolutely. Get, you get the same smell and everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's definitely common, but it shouldn't be used as an excuse either. And I, if I could go back um, and do things differently now, I definitely would. I would definitely um, ask my husband to do more things uh, and and my husband was a, a is a, a very very busy surgeon. He worked you know hideous hours, um, and all of all of the early parenting duties really fell to me entirely. Um, and I had exactly the same experience. You know, if he if he went to either of our littles, um, the world knew about it because <laughs> because they just kicked <laughs> off. They were like you've sent the wrong parent, you numpty. Send the proper <laughs> one in, the one with the boobs. Come on. Um, but I think sometimes um, we need to uh, persevere a bit with that because it, it's absolutely right that children um, should have uh, a, a close loving relationship with their um, father or other parent if there is one around um, and I think sometimes we rescue too quickly we go oh just let me do it but then that just increases the anger and the injustice and the imbalance doesn't it we make it worse by intervening and rescuing and I think sometimes we just need to go it's okay they are with their parent <laughs> they're not with some random human they've never met they are with their actual parent we can just sit tight for a few minutes here but also involving um, dads and other parents in as many other activities as we possibly can whether that's playtime nappy change time you know let's face it we we as 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 women and and primary caregivers don't get taught this stuff we just figure it out so it's not an excuse to say oh well I, he just doesn't know how to I don't know mm. you know read the story in the right way give them a chance let them try more and it's the one thing that I wish I'd done more of my kids have an amazing relationship with 
their their dad now and they they go away for weekends in the camper van surfing and bodyboarding and you know lots of great stuff and they've grown into an incredibly close relationship with him but I wish I just trusted him to get on with it rather than rescuing I don't have many parenting regrets um, because I believe we learn from all sorts of experiences but that is definitely one I I do regret because I think it would have saved a lot of hassle Mm. I know my husband had a different approach with the, our daughter who was a bit more tolerant he'd go in and um, rock her to sleep to the prodigy and he used to bounce her <laughs> around really really he used to really really bounce her very you know enthusiastically and she'd fall asleep yeah. it was amazing she just you know and I'd be and I had big band music on because I thought oh, this is quite nice to dance around to but he liked the prodigy and it still worked with her it's a very different approach I think that's, that's definitely quite common and and I um our eldest used to need what I called the mummy bounce. And it was quite a complicated bounce. You know, you had to bounce <laughs> with the right rhythm. And there was kind of like a, a figure eight hip action. Um, that, and, and it had to be that bounce um, and the right beat. And when my husband tried to do it, I was like, right, no, come on. It's, it's like that. I tried to show him how to do the mummy bounce. <laughs> And he just messed it up. He made a complete hash of it. And he, he kind of looked like he was doing bad dad dancing, but, but you know, a, a sort of strange interpretation of something. I don't know. It was awful. And she, it didn't work at all. And I realized that what I was trying to do was make him into a, a me clone. And that was never going to be a good a, approach. I should have just said, you know what? I've got my way of settling her. Knock yourself out. You just do whatever feels right. And you'll find a way. And I think I, I didn't learn this really until our youngest went to nursery. And I freaked out for weeks in advance um, because I knew they weren't going to be able to do the mummy bounce. They didn't have boobs. Um, she was a pain in the bum. She she, she never went in the cot. Um, and and I, I was I, I don't know how I don't know how she's going to get through the day. She's going to be melting down when I pick her up. It's going to be awful. My life is going to be ruined, catastrophizing all the way. But you know what? They found a way. They they just they they ended up putting her on um, their laps and kind of they sat down with her on their lap um, in front of them and they sort of swayed their legs from side to side um, while singing a, a little. She was a, a lovely Spanish lady and she used to sway her on her lap and sing this little Spanish song. And she went to sleep. She found a way. I can't speak Spanish, sadly. Um, and if I tried that, it probably would have gone belly up. But it worked for them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, just one more question before we finish. Cool. Is uh, Talk about the older children then. Uh, in your Still Awake book, you, you cover up to 12-year-olds. How do things change with this sort of 8, 9, 10-year-old uh, who, who's struggling to sleep? Well, for, for those little ones, it is so often about something cognitive. Uh, and that's kind of why I love this age group. And it's why I wrote the book, because a lot of um, books sort of adapt some of the baby and toddler strategies for older kids. But actually, older children have so much more going on. You actually need to think about all of that stuff um, to get to the root of what's bugging them and stopping them from sleep. It's often um, something to do with anxiety. And I, I, I don't mean a pathological level of anxiety that requires psychotherapy or family counselling or anything. I just mean that kids get bent out of shape about all sorts of stuff. They get anxious about loads of things. Um, 
it might be a peer bust up it might be a playground spat it might be that their teacher didn't um you know name their work as a, a standout piece of work in class and they were really proud of it um you know, my, both of my children were um melting down last night actually so I, I don't mind I don't mind sharing that my eight-year-old was really anxious because I was about to do a live webinar and I wasn't able to um stay with her normally I um I pop in I don't stay with her while she falls asleep anymore but I definitely pop in and out and she was extremely anxious because I wasn't able to do that. So we had to use um, my magic ribbon trick, which is something that I've used for years with little ones. That we we now don't have a physical ribbon, but I say, look, we'll do the ribbon, okay? Um, so just imagine um, we're tying a ribbon to your heart. Let's quickly tie it onto my heart. I'm literally the other side of the wall. Just imagine that ribbon stretching into um, my office and I'll be you know I'm literally two meters away um, through a wall um, whereas my older daughter hadn't got picked for the A team on um, on her um, hockey match today um, she was in the D team in fact <laughs> oh gosh oh, no. and, and actually she's been working really hard on her hockey she's she she feels that she's made great inroads and her perception is that um, the D team is full of people who actually aren't very good players at all. And she's far better than them. And it's very frustrating. And we had to work through that. That that took a while. Um, but it, it's something, isn't it? It's it's going to be, you know, I didn't make the team. My I'm anxious about something. I'm worried about this friendship. Um, I've got a tummy ache. And, you know, often tummy ache in children that's around the umbilical cord, um, the umbilical cord, the, uh, the belly button, and the closer it is to the belly button, the more likely that is to be psychological generally. Um, it, there's nothing really physically under the belly button that, that causes tummy ache. So you can bet your bottom dollar if your child is complaining suddenly of belly ache around their um, belly button that's come out of nowhere and it's right before bedtime, that's probably anxiety. Um, so just trying to work out what is bugging them is usually at the, the root of um, sleep problems, but also um, working on their self-esteem, uh, working on their fragile egos, working on um, uh, the, the sort of the, a growth mindset. I talk about growth mindset a lot with older kiddies. Um, the idea of um, you know we can we can work on this. We can get better at it. No, you're not you're not great at it now. But what can you do to get better? In fact, I used that about the hockey. I said, well, you know what? If you're not the best player. It's okay that they didn't put you on the A team. That's actually quite sensible. And we, we shouldn't be praising kids so much for their effort that we're just constantly telling them, hey, great job, you're amazing. Because actually that doesn't help them to grow and get better. So we were saying, well, actually, what could you do? Well, could you join the hockey club and then you'll get more practice at hockey? I said, why don't you ask your games teacher for some specific feedback about how you can up your game? You know, you can get better and then you might make the A-team, you know, but it's about working on that anxiety. If I just said, go to bed, it's bedtime, it's 10 o'clock, just, you know, go now. Then she would have lain awake, um, stressing and not being asleep and um, being upset 
Whereas actually spending 20 minutes just figuring out what was underneath all of that anxiety meant that we could come up with something constructive and then boom, she goes to sleep. It's often not about sleep in older kids. And I think maybe that's why I like it so much because it's, um, it's a bit more detective work that goes on. I could talk all day about that. It's really difficult to summarise um, <laughs> sleep in older kids. So do you think it's more to do uh, with psychology and what's going on in their brain rather than the sort of physiological ability to sleep? Yes, although it's incredibly connected, uh, you know, and we, we know, of course, that, um, uh, you know, psychological stress can become um, physical. And, and of course, we can't sleep with our foot on the gas pedal. So if, if there is anything bugging kids, then it's very, very likely to impact their sleep. That's it's just really, really um, uh, basic in terms of the stress response. It's very hard to go to sleep when you're stressed. And if you think about any time when um, you've been stressed as an adult, you know this because if you've had a fallout with your partner or husband, if you've had a really bad day at work, if um, if you've fallen out with a mate and it's unresolved, if uh, you're stressing about finances, whatever it is, it's really difficult to go to sleep because your your mind is churning. And you also know that you might eventually go to sleep, but the quality of your sleep is not great because um, it's really difficult to fall asleep from that state of arousal and stress response. Um, kids are exactly the same. If we manage what is causing the stress response, sleep normally comes as a consequence. But do you have you have some people who just aren't very good at sleeping? Is that... Yeah. Is that still a thing? Definitely, yeah. definitely. Uh, there's a about ten percent of the population um, uh, are are sort of the, the the colloquial term for them is dolphins. They're dolphin sleepers. So you've probably heard of you know larks and owls. People sometimes talk about bears and all sorts of different sort of animal analogies for the way we sleep. But about ten percent of the population are dolphins. Now dolphins have a tendency towards insomnia. They need less sleep and they spend less time in deep sleep. So they they tend to wake up at the drop of a hat. Um, I'm possibly a dolphin. If I wake up, um, I find it very difficult to return to sleep. And I wake up, uh, I joke about this often, if a mouse farts, I'm awake. Um, it, it doesn't take much to wake me up in the middle of the night. Um and and lots of people are dolphins. You can function pretty well as a dolphin. It's fine. Um, not everybody needs loads of sleep. Um, I'm certainly someone who only needs, you know, five or six hours of sleep a night and I'm fine. But that means that my threshold is, although it's pretty high, my sleep deprivation threshold is, is pretty impressive. It means if I don't get five hours, if I get four, I, I don't cope very well at all. Um, You've got no capacity. You've yeah, got no there's no buffer. storage. <laughs> if, <No. laughs> if, if, if you kind of get eight hours most nights, you know, a lot of people cope better if they get more sleep in general. It's almost like there's just more in the tank. That's not really the way it works. You can't store up sleep, actually. That's not it's not how it works at all. But um, there seems to be a bigger buffer. But, but yes, some mm. people just don't need as much sleep as others. No. Oh, well, Lindsay, thank you so much. I've taken up so much of your time. But how can people find out more? What's the best way to follow you, find out a bit more from your insights if they want to? Uh, so, well, the easiest 
place to find me um, and and to to access support is um, on my Instagram. That's uh, at Lindsay underscore Hookway. Just be careful with the spelling. My parents gave me a name that has about 59 uh, variations of spelling. Thanks for that. Um, but uh, Instagram is probably the easiest place to find me. But I'm also on Facebook as Feed Sleep Bond. Um, my books, uh, the one I would recommend for um, families who are pregnant up to about 18 months is Let's Talk About Your New Family's Sleep. And then Still Awake was written for toddlers to tweens. Um, and they are always the, the most affordable, comprehensive way of getting lots and lots of information. Um, and then my website is where you can buy um, books and sleep guides and courses and all kinds of stuff. That's lindsayhookway.com. Lovely. Thank you. Well, I'll put all the links in the um, show notes and also on my Facebook page so that people can follow from there. Thank but you. Um, Oh, thank you so much. There's, I'll think for all the questions I should have asked you, but it's such a fascinating <laughs> topic and it's, it's so emotional, topic. isn't it? It's, just, it's very big. Yeah. Yeah, people never say sleep. Yeah, whatever. Don't care about sleep. Everyone's like, oh, how do you get babies to sleep? Yes. What happened? You know, I've got this issue. I wish I had a quick answer for that. There, there isn't one. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, hopefully that's a few thoughts about sleep anyway. Yeah, lovely. Well, what a lot of uh, helpful advice from Lindsay, who sounded like she's trying not to give any advice, but actually gave loads of advice. Um, I, I'd just like to say a little bit about what I did with the sleep training with our son, who I think was 18 months at the time. Um, actually, it was an online consultation and uh, we did a very gentle withdrawal from the room. Um, I had spent the whole time really being with him and making sure that he, in life, that he was really well attached. So I didn't want to do a sudden, um, let's just get him to sleep regardless. So we ended up with me um, lying on a bed next to him for a little while and then sleeping on a chair, well, sitting on a chair, which ended up sleeping on a chair next to him. And this was called the sleepy chair. And uh, I'd sit on it until he went to sleep and then for 10 minutes or so afterwards, and then I'd leave the room and when he woke up, I'd come back in and sit on the chair again until he'd gone to sleep for quite a while afterwards. So it was absolutely exhausting. I was plotting my coffee for, you know, 9am the next day. And I remember phoning the sleep consultant, just saying, look, is this right? I'm not getting any sleep at all. This is absolutely exhausting. But after a little while, probably a few days, he did sleep for a bit longer, a bit longer and the idea was that the sleepy chair was a sign of me and we moved it a few metres away from his bed and then a little bit out of the room because he's only in a very small room. And then I'd be sitting on the landing going, I'm here, Charlie, I'm here. So he got used to the idea that I was still there. It was very much attachment based, I think, his um, his waking up. And, uh, and, and that really worked for both of us because I didn't want a method that was too harsh on him. And uh, I but I did want a method that encouraged him to sleep. And so over the years, um, we've developed, uh, I suppose, routines, different routines over the time. And at the moment, what I do is uh, I sit with him and we um, pray, we pray a bit. And then I he goes to sleep. I hold his elbow because he faces the wall in a sort of prone, but I kneel by the bed and hold his elbow. And then I can leave the room and I can quite often leave the room when he's awake and he'll, he will fall asleep. And he does sleep all through the night. And if he wakes up in the night to go to the bathroom, he can get himself back to sleep. And 
he was, I think, one of the world's worst sleepers. And even now, I think he's probably going to be fine when he's up and out in the world. I think he's going to be a bit of a party animal and doesn't need as much sleep as some people, definitely not as much as me. But um, that works. So if you're really struggling with uh, your child sleeping, then I'd suggest if you can afford it, maybe to get some professional advice and come up with a plan for you. But hopefully you've got enough tips uh, from this podcast to help you along the way. So I'm going to put the links to uh, Lindsay's website and her books and so on on my Instagram and uh, Facebook page. Well, probably on Facebook because I find it easier to do links on that. And I am Mothers Matter Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. I'm on Twitter at Podcast Mothers. And uh, please do feel free to get in touch. I'm on Mothers Matter at Outlook.com. And uh, having thought, you know, I'd probably be winding up the podcast by now. I've actually got um, some really good guests coming up. Well, all my guests are brilliant, but I've got some really interesting topics coming up as well. So um, please do keep, please do subscribe and keep checking back for new um, podcast episodes. And I'll be back again with another one soon. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.